Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. The taxation and representation shall go together. Therefore, women taxpayers are entitled to vote. Welcome to our second show under the banner Rise Up Women, which incidentally is taken from today's special guest's brand new book detailing the remarkable lives of the suffragettes. In acknowledgement of a hundred years of partial voting rights for women, author and historian Diane Atkinson joins me in the studio. Firstly, welcome Diane and congratulations on such a comprehensive and very personable account of 200 quite disparate women uh, united in suffrage. How long did it take you to write? Well, I'd written about the suffragettes before and I'd curated an exhibition about them. Um, so I had some background knowledge, but it took me four years to go and find new stories, which was my purpose, because in the past I've always written about what they did. And in this book, I've written about who they were. Mm. So it's really a, a biography of a collective biography of 200 women mm. in the campaign. There were many more, of course, but these are the 200 that really talk about diversity mm. of class, of culture, of uh, re the regions and all kinds of life experiences that are brought together in this giant kind of bumper annual, really, of the suffragettes. It's almost like going back in time because, because some of it is just so detailed, not just the factual stuff, which is which is incredible, but, uh, you know, the, the very emotional side as well. I mean, was it was, did you just find this from the internet or did you speak to descendants of? Well, I found, I mean, the internet is great because people put their family stories and you can, of course, thank goodness for Ancestry.co.uk because we can find these people and we can confirm that they were the women we were looking for. We can find lots of new women who just pop up in all different places. So it's a bit of kind of detective work on the internet through Ancestry. Um, more archives are putting their collections online so you can kind of dig away and find them. Um, but actually, I've got to know quite a few descendants of the suffragettes. I did a BBC programme a couple of years ago and I got myself in touch with the women who had phoned in about their great aunts and their grandmothers. And it was great just to go and interview them and share their stories. And I've brought those to the book too. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, they must have given you so much, so much detail that you just wouldn't get on on your average the internet site, I guess. Well, it was just a sense of uh, the character of the person. I think the character of the women who became suffragettes was very strong and very particular and and very amusing very often and, and very kind of stubborn. <laughs> and so a lot of that kind of, I think, goes through the DNA. So it's interesting to see some of the descendants. You could think, gosh, I could, I could see you as a suffragette. 
because it's there. It's in the DNA. <laughs> Absolutely. So in embryo, suffragettes were members of the of women's organisations in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, which advocated extending voting rights from men only, and, and then only some men, small landowners, tenant farmers, shopkeepers, etc., as well as the gentry, to men and women equally, a goal that was only partially achieved um, in 1918, uh, allowing some female property owners over the age of 30 to vote. So, so we're only really celebrating the 100 years of, of, of partial? Yes, it's the 100-year innovative partial suffrage. Mm. But of course, the suffragettes who I've written about were kind of the noisy, upstart, shouty newcomers to the campaign because they appeared... And they kind of barged into the women's suffrage campaigning, sort of the theatre, which had been going since the 1860s. And that campaign was very moderate and quite law-abiding and quite genteel. And let's ask for the rent rather than demand it. So the Pankhursts, who founded the Women's Social and Political Union in 1903, said, OK, we're done with that style. Our organisation is going to be direct action. And our slogan is deeds, not words. And that tells you everything you need to know about them. The time for talking is done. We're going to make this happen. To women far and wide, the trumpet call goes forth. Come fight with us in our battle for freedom. This is a battle in which all must take part. They must come ready for active endeavour and for strenuous service. Do not leave any of your womanliness behind when you come into this movement. It is womanliness that we look for in those that fight in our ranks. This is no anti-man crusade. If you have any class feeling, you must leave that behind, for the women in our movement know no barriers of class or distinction. If you are tied to any man's political party, you must break that tie. For in this movement, women are pledged to independence of all political parties till the vote is won. But you know what, Diane, what struck me in your book were the women who protested against the protesters. I mean, I guess it's a different time and I guess a lot of them were just quite scared to dip the toe in. That's a really good point that you draw out of the book because, I mean... A lot of men and women were against women having the vote, and that's surprising to us. But at the time, it seemed to make perfect sense to them. Across the classes, women thought it was just too revolutionary. It was going to spoil everything. It was going to undermine British society as everybody knew it, as imperfect as that was. But very often the suffragettes would be out and about and they'd be trying to have a meeting on, say, Wimbledon Common or on a street corner or somewhere, and they could be physically attacked by other women. (laughs) And I find that astonishing. I mean, you'd expect them to have, and this happened a lot, kind of lumps of coal thrown at them and cabbages and abuse, of course, really unpleasant abuse. Um, And, of course, poor Sylvia had dead cats and dogs thrown out at the east end of London. But for women to join in and then to kind of get into a fisticuffs, hair-pulling scenario is really troubling. The best-selling novelist, Mrs Humphrey Ward, organised a petition in 1889, signed by the great and the good women of Victorian society against female suffrage, to be presented to Parliament to appeal to the common sense and the educated thought of the men and women of England against the proposed extension of the parliamentary suffrage to women. 
Talk us briefly through the origins of the of the Women's Social and Political Union and obviously some of the courageous women that you've picked um, in the book that were intrinsically uh, involved. Obviously, we have Emmeline and Frederick Perfect Lawrence, uh, Emmeline Pankhurst, but there's, there's loads more. Well, I mean, the Pankhurst really are the stars of the campaign. They found it. They're so charismatic. They make it a very sexy organisation, yeah. lots of young women. And women right across the board, the age spectrum from like 16 through to women in their 70s and 80s were joining them. So they're so, but they're very, very appealing. And they're able to attract this great diverse bunch of women who were going to make this thing happen. They were very fortunate, um, but it's not a coincidence because they were charismatics, actually, that they attracted people like Frederick Pethick Lawrence and his wife, Emmeline. And they were progressive people. They joined their names together. They were very modern. Yes, I, 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 you know. I, I noticed that, yeah. And they um, had lots of money and they were they were noble souls. They really were marvellous people who gave so much money and support. He was a barrister. He was always bailing suffragettes out of um, the nick. He was always getting them out on uh, overnight and then taking them back to court again so they had some time away from um, custody cells. So a lot of his money and time was kind of ploughed into the movement. His expertise, his legal expertise was vast, so he's helping on that score. Mrs Pethick Lawrence was an amazing fundraiser. She raised the equivalent of £3 million in five years. The woman could not stop raising money. She was a genius. So you've got those kind of people who are central to the development and the funding and the bankrolling of the whole project. But then across the country, you've got these extraordinary women who are getting turned on to suffrage, if you like, and they can be all different kinds of people. You had quite a lot of people from the theatre and the music hall. And there's a marvellous woman called um, Vera Home, known to her friends as Jack, and she was a male impersonator. And, <laughs> uh, she was uh, working at the same time as Vesta Tilly. Although we know about Vesta Tilly, we don't know about Vera when she was being uh, doing her act. So you've got people in the theatre. You've got women working in sweatshops. You've got women, uh, a lot of school teachers. And a lot of nurses, nurses were very involved in the campaign. Women doctors, you've got um, women who worked in factories, you've got servants, you've got all kinds of women. You've got very poor and women with rank and title. And they kind of come together in this kind of army for the cause. And that's what they called it, the cause. And presumably it wasn't just like a society that was doing all this. It was also a secret society because a lot of people didn't want certain people to know that they were involved. I mean, I hear that some of the, uh, the the more gentrified ladies who were just wanted to dip their toe in it would dress up in their maids' outfits to go to go to a demo and throw a stone or something. That that certainly is well documented at the beginning of the campaign because you know it was a massive thing to come out. Mm. It's a coming out moment. For it's just like the, the the gay struggle. I see lots of parallels. It's very very similar indeed. And of course, a lot of women do dress up. They dress down, should I say? Um, and some women, their marriages suffered and collapsed because of their uh, persistence with the campaign. Their husbands didn't like it. Some engagements got broken off. Um, lots of young suffragettes lost their friendships, lost their jobs. Their families disowned them. So it was a massive step to, to come out and say, I'm a suffragette. I'm that kind of woman. I'm prepared to protest. I'm prepared to interrupt a meeting. You know, I'm prepared to go and smash a window if called upon. <laughs> Are you going to play the woman or are you going to play the coward? Are you going to stand by and let others bear the brunt of battle? Are you going to say to yourself, I will be sympathetic, I will occasionally talk about it to my friends, perhaps I will give a little money, 
but I do not mean to risk my reputation or friendships or personal esteem by too prominently identifying myself with the cause of my sex. Or are you made of sterner stuff than this? Are you going to come forward and say, I will be a battle comrade in the great fight. I will share the difficulties and the hardships. I will make the sacrifices that are required of me. I love reading that the, the term suffragette was coined by a Daily Mail reporter. What a surprise. Um, ridiculing them, implying uh, their cause was silly and insignificant. But then the tables were turned when they empowered the word by pronouncing it suffragette, as in get the vote. Yes, yes. I mean, it just makes me think of gay people using the word queer to empower that term. Yes. Oh, they, were, they, they didn't mind it at all. You know, they just kind of took it in their stride. They embraced it. They owned it. And they were very happy to call themselves suffragette, suffragette. Gets. And they, in a way, that joke backfired. <laughs> While we're doing it, let's name and shame. Charles Hands was the Daily Mail reporter, but uh, got, let him rest in peace now. Yes. <laughs> Mary Lee, who had only just come out of prison after smashing the Prime Minister's windows, was soon back in the thick of things. On the night of the 14th of October, she flung herself against two mounted policemen. <laughs> grabbing a bridle in each hand and was sent back to Holloway to serve three months. During her time in the second division, Mary secretly corresponded with Dear Rebel, Ada Flatman, on sheets of prison lavatory paper. The women would meet secretly in the lavatory and pass notes to each other. Mary Lee was one of the awkward squad, talking to suffragette prisoners through the grill in the door as they trooped past her cell, passing letters to Ada to smuggle around the prison and out into the world. So loads of protests outside the House of Commons, smuggling themselves in Trojan horse-style in furniture vans. I mean, it was very industrious the way they, they kept the cause going, very, um, very imaginative ways of, of, of moving things forward. Well, they were great organisers. They were great stage managers of events. They really were brilliant at spectacle. And when they had their first big rally in London in 1908, it was in Hyde Park. They filled Hyde Park with a lot of curious men who went to gaze on these these interesting-looking women. And, of course, this was completely at odds with the, uh, po- the, co- the cartoon postcards that were going around, ugly harridans, men in dresses, uh, screaming and mewing cats, cackling geese, all that kind of stuff, you know. And then they went along to see what the suffragettes were like. And they were handsome women, pretty women, well-dressed, all kinds of women, not just posh ladies, ordinary working women. But, of course, it's the women in nice dresses, nice frocks, nice hats, nice accessories that get photographed. So our impression of the suffragettes, I think, has been skewed by um, these photographs because press photographers always pick the prettiest girl, prettiest woman, best frock. And I think a lot of people have been misguided in thinking the suffragettes were just middle-class women kind of messing about Mm. at politics. And so um, when they were able to put these events together, they were brilliantly choreographed. Mm. Um, They were uh, organised with military precision. Uh, Don't forget that they call themselves crusaders for women's freedom. So there's a lot of religious rhetoric. There's a lot of militaristic rhetoric. Their patron saint is Joan of Arc. You know, she does (laughs) it for them. So whenever they're out marching through the streets and going to a big event, it's beautiful. It's spot on. It's just exquisite. There are limits.
limits to human endurance. When you are tricked and deceived, when Parliament betrays its sacred trust, you have a right to rebel. I ask that all of you here will stand shoulder to shoulder with the militant women. Let them burn and destroy property. Let them do anything they will. This is a holy war. Remind me of the colours that they wore, the, the green, purple and uh, white. Yes. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Pethett Lawrence, genius woman, invented that colour scheme, which is unusual. It's odd. Um, she said is. She said that purple was uh, for dignity, uh, that white was for purity and green was for hope for the future. And she said all suffragettes embodied these characteristics and she encouraged suffragettes to wear the colours at all times. Absolutely. The fact that a lot of these, as you said, handsome, beautiful women as well, middle class women, well dressed, women who didn't necessarily need the vote because they had money, they had status, etc, etc. So to see those people out with the others must have been quite a powerful uh, message. It was a message because you could say they had it all. Absolutely. But of course, a lot of them have feminist tendencies, which are rather dangerous at the time. And this, of course, has been bubbling away since the middle of the 19th century. But an awful lot of them really objected to the fact that women could not get a good education, that women were expected to get married and then become the property, going from the property of their husbands to their fathers to the property of their husbands. So they objected to that. They objected to the fact that women's property rights were negligible. Uh, They were often invisible in the eyes of the law, certainly married women. So they came to it with some kind of earnest conviction. But the the strongest impulse for lots of them is to help their working class sisters. And there's been this tired old argument that the suffragettes were just middle class messing around, didn't care about poor women. They did. And that's why they put their themselves on the line for it, because they were so unhappy about the numbers of women in prison, children being born in prison, uh, you know, starvation wages, uh, the white slave trade, so many uh, worrying uh, issues that they thought the vote was going to deal with. So that, that they're putting, them, putting themselves out enormously, making enormous sacrifices, suffering quite a lot to get all women the vote and to make their lives change. The police seemed to be skilled to frustrate my purpose. I could not strike them. My arms were being held. I could not even stamp on their toes. They seemed able to prevent that. Yet I must bring myself under arrest. Lectures on the law flashed to my mind. I could, even with all limbs helpless, commit a technical assault. And so I found myself arrested and charged with spitting at a policeman. It was not a real spit, but only, how shall we call it, a pout, a perfectly dry purse of the mouth. I could not really have done it, even to get the vote. Many people were imprisoned and they weren't recognised as political prisoners. Sometimes it was hard labour, etc., for, for damage to property. I mean, we're talking about panes of glass being broken, but... Well, when they went to prison in the early days, and they could be arrested for quite trivial things, like walking on the pavement, holding a little placard saying, give women the vote. So the early offences were really daft. But of course, the government just wanted to sweep them off the streets and put them off. And when they went to prison, they said, we are political prisoners. Our aims and objectives are entirely political. 
Therefore, we should be treated as political prisoners in the same way that men in the 19th century who were imprisoned for political offences were given special status, like wearing their own clothes, having freedom of association, having their own food sent in, having newspapers and books. So they were set apart from the rest of the prison population who were common criminals. But of course, suffragettes weren't going to get that because it was acknowledging the fact their campaign and their behaviour was politically motivated. So that was never going to really play out very well. So that's where you get this whole concept, the struggle of the hunger strike and then force feeding. And that's really when the campaign is um, oxygenated by the struggle in prison. And that violence in prison is increasingly seen on the streets as a direct link between what's going on in prison, what's going on in the rest of the country. No, absolutely. I just was going to say they were putting um, bombs in letterboxes and buildings were targeted, but they're always unattended. They, were, they weren't looking to, to risk life at all. No, no, no. no. They, they were absolutely determined that no lives would be lost. And people have this impression that um, they set out to kill people. They didn't. They wrecked those places really carefully to make sure nobody was going to be hurt. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, telephone-wise, cut graffiti written. Uh, but most militant years I had 1910 to 1914. Uh, Theatres and sports uh, venues and empty houses. Businesses, I think uh, uh, Chatham Dockyard, some of the timber was set on fire. You know, there's lots of stuff going on all over the country. And churches, of course. Now, this was really shocking because the suffragettes were all Christians. They're all, you know, uh, religious women. Um, but they were, fo- they were so desperate by 1913 and 14 when this is happening and so frustrated, many of them into prison several times. And it's because the church won't come out and condemn the government about force feeding. Some, the ch- some churchmen do, but as a, as a whole, as an institution, they're pretty equivocal. And that's why churches, some beautiful ancient churches in Scotland and all over the country, are burnt down by the suffragettes, which is a remarkable thing, a remarkable step for them to have taken. Leading from that, it's Mm. just made me think, if they hadn't got their way at the time when they did Mm. and this escalated even more, do you think they would have considered taking life? I don't think so. I don't think so because I think they suffered more violence. They experienced more violence. They endured more violence than ever was done by them. Mm. You know, they're kind of soaking up all this pressure going to prison for a political purpose. So I don't think it would have ever attacked anybody. It was that they were, you know, there was this rumour going around that they threatened to kill Churchill. Well, I think some of them privately might have laughed at the idea. <laughs> but that was, that was just a rumour, which is a scurrilous rumour. They would not have done that because that was not, that was not part of the, the scheme at all. They would just kept going. And I mean, I think some of their members might have died, but they've still kept going. Four women went on hunger strike and were force-fed throughout their sentence. Emily Davison wedged two beds and mattresses, table and stool, against the door. After being warned of the consequences if she did not open the door, a ladder appeared at the cell window. The glass was broken and the nozzle of a hosepipe was pushed through. Then came the deluge. At first, the stream shot over my head. I took hold of the bedboards and sat firm. Then they got the water trained full on me. The stream came at me, full force. I had to hold on like grim death. Hunger strikes inspired from Russian methods of protest and apparently they were fed 
uh, with, with tubes going up the nose. I mean, it sounds atrocious. Well, yeah. I mean, um, in the past, force feeding had, had only really happened in this country in lunatic asylums when the um, inmates wouldn't eat. So that was a standard practice. But, of course, they didn't want the suffragettes to die in prison. They didn't want a martyr for the cause. And so they started to force feed them. I mean, there were three ways of doing it. One was just to tie a woman to a chair, tip her back and just ram food into her mouth and stop her spitting it out. That was the basic way. The next way was the nasal tube you just referred to, whereby uh, there's a funnel and down a funnel uh, there was a, a rubber tube and you would pour down or the doctors would pour down um, egg, raw egg and milk or milk and um, beef extract or brandy or something disgusting. And that would just go into the tube and it would be just rammed up the nose. Why not down the throat? Well, that was the next one. It was oh. that, that, that's the next stage of torture. So that's it was, worse, is it? <laughs> that was a, that's not quite apparently not so bad. Oh. And the third stage, the third strategy was the stomach tube. So they're just pouring food straight into the tube, and that tube is forced into your mouth down the throat. It's often causing damage to the vocal cords, and is just going right to the top of the stomach. So it's just being poured straight in, and that was terrifying. You're gagging all the time. You're vomiting at the same time. Um, psychologically, it's very disturbing. It's terrifying. Um, it's a really disgraceful thing to do. And it was torture. And at the beginning, they said, this government is torturing women. The hosing lasted for 15 minutes and its coldness made her gasp for breath. Then the door was smashed down and a wardress pushed her out of the cell, telling her she would be horsewhipped for her behaviour. Emily was taken to the hospital wing, where the force feeding resumed, and she was only released three days later on the 28th of October, having served only eight days of her two-month sentence. The legal proceedings she launched to assault and damages of £100 against Strangeways Prison were eventually won in January 1910, although she was only awarded damages of £2. The musical actress and comedian Kitty Marion, yes, who was force-fed 232 times during just one prison sentence. Yeah. She sounded a gutsy lady. She was gorgeous. She's one of my favourites. She was a German girl who'd run away from Germany to be with her auntie and uncle in Walthamstow. She went on the stage. She started in Panto. And she becomes, she's got quite a good career, moving around the country, touring theatres and musicals all round Britain and Scotland. And um, she was a, what was called a refined comedienne. And she was a singer and an actor. And she had a really good career going with her. But she had a problem, like lots of actors had and still do now, with kind of sexual harassment. And that's how she got into suffrage, because the number of jobs she lost because she wouldn't get onto the casting couch were pretty serious. And she led this really hand-to-mouth existence because a lot of the time she can't get work because she, she won't put out, you know, she won't do that. And she comes to the suffragettes with this particular campaign, very modern now, of course, very still with us, and saying that she thought the vote was going to sort this out. And, of course, it didn't, it hasn't yet, but let's see what happens. So I love Kitty because... Um, she was very devoted. She broke windows. She interrupted at meetings and she burnt down Hearst Park um, Grandstand race course the day that Emily Wilding Davis and her friend died. She burns down other buildings too um, and she's quite a, quite a career arsonist. So when she's in prison in 1913, it's because she's been 
an art convicted for arson. And she has this very long sentence. And, you know, she's force-fed, as you said, 232 times, which is amazing. And she'd been force-fed before. I mean, I can't imagine being force-fed once. Mm. And for some of them, a lot of them, they were doing it on multiple occasions. Yeah. And that was their own decision. Nobody was telling them to do that. They had to make that decision on their own. The violence used against the women on Black Friday and the days that followed had an immediate impact on suffragette militancy. Some women were no longer prepared to take part in deputations to Parliament and run such risks again. Others were prepared to throw stones, break windows or commit other acts which would get them arrested immediately. Deputations to Parliament were abandoned and window smashing would come to be the order of the day. I was standing against the railings of Constitutional Hill, a completely passive resistor, when one of the constables, who was mounting a grey horse, hit me on the head with his baton and deliberately proceeded to back his horse into me, with the result that I received a violent kick in the lower abdomen, which completely incapacitated me. I heard one constable advise another to take a woman by the breasts. Black Friday, the 18th of November 1910, when uh, they, they tried to get into the House of Commons. The police were sexually abusing suffragettes as well as uh, uh, violence against them. Oh, yeah, there's 150 very well-documented cases of physical and sexual violence. Um, the problem was was a huge police presence. They were ready. They knew the suffragettes would go from their meeting in Caxton Hall and make comments on the fact that Asquith had uh, torpedoed the bill. And they set off in groups of a dozen. You know, They wanted just to get into Parliament to talk to politicians. And, of course, they were never allowed to get that far. There was a vast police presence. There were men in uniform, the reg regular constables. There were men on mounted police on huge horses to intimidate women and to push them against the railings. But there was a big army of plainclothes police officers who'd been drafted in from the East End where they were used to dealing with violent thugs. And they were wearing, this is really disturbing, they were wearing plain clothes, just regular jackets and trousers, flat caps, and they were wearing badges which said the Men's League for Women's Suffrage. So they were, they were decoys. They went in disguise and there they were pretending to be on their side. But they'd gone there as adjunct provocateur. And a number of uh, 39 cases, actually, of women reporting and being um, documented, being taken into side streets and either sexually assaulted by uniformed constables or by these plainclothes guys in, in wearing these badges. And mm. the sexual violence was just awful, absolutely awful. I mean, just when it comes from the police, it just it just takes your breath away. It was interesting that you, you said that um, occasionally uh, fines were paid so the women could come out of prison. But I think the idea a lot of the time was they wanted, they were happy to take the sentence. I mean, apparently Winston Churchill paid a fine to stop the suffragettes going to prison. But his reason for that was to prevent them getting extra publicity in the papers. Well, they were, you know, the, the, the government was always keen to um, shut the stories down. And the press were really, I think, leaned on quite a lot to not report all the stories. But of course, that just made them more determined to become more militant and to make and to, to ensure that the stories did get in the newspapers, because that was vital to keep the cause going. Let's talk about some. Um, 
suffrage and votes for women that the two newspapers, would you call them, or magazines of, of yeah, the day? That, like that. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, who, who, were, who were running those? How did they get them uh, well distributed? Well, um, the Pedic Lawrences were completely behind these newspapers. They were co-editors and they were, the first one, Votes for Women, was a weekly and it was just sold on the newsstand like every other newspaper. Smith sold it, all the big chains, every railway station sold the suffragette. And in fact, you could buy Votes for Women and the suffragette in, in New York and you could even buy it in India. So it spread <laughs> far and wide. And that really kept the membership... Um, informed as to what's their next big event, what big spectacles coming up next. It also told them what's going on in Parliament and how that affected women and why the vote was so important. Also, it had a, a page called Women in Other Lands, which was about feminism, about feminism in Nigeria and women climbing mountains in South America and doing great daring deeds and, and making sort of great steps forward. So it was a great vehicle for creating this international sisterliness, you know, and keeping everybody close and going forward it was very very clever also there was a situate there was a classified ads page and on a lot of those um, in a lot of those columns were suffragettes saying they'd lost their jobs did anybody have a job for them it's, I mean, it's like the internet now it's, it's like a yeah. you know interactive social media yeah sns online presents the soundtrack of your life So we have a uh, feature in our show called uh, The Soundtrack of Your Life. In this case, perhaps the soundtrack of their lives, uh, perhaps something to do with the suffragettes that uh, talks about the struggle and, and the hope that, that women had at the time. Do you have uh, any particular one you'd like us to play today? I would love you to play, if at all possible, The March of the Women which was written by Ethel Smythe and the words were provided by Cicely Hamilton. And it's such a glorious anthem. It's so inspiring. It's so uplifting. And the suffragettes would march along and sing that over and over and over again. They had other suffragette songs, but that was the anthem. And it was it so much describes the struggle and all the energy and the love behind it. Oh, 
You're listening to SNS Online, the second in a special season of shows to mark 100 years of partial voting rights for women in the UK. Diane's fascinating, detailed and fully illustrated page-turner, Rise Up Women, The Remarkable Lives of the Suffragettes, is printed by Bloomsbury and is available in all good bookshops and online outlets. And if you want to contact us about this or any other show, then please join our Facebook and Twitter pages, both SNS Online. All our shows are available to be heard at any time or downloaded for free at the SNS Online SoundCloud page. And finally, our email address, which is snsonlineshow at gmail.com. There were film cameras at Epsom that day to satisfy the empire-wide demand for stories about the royal family and Derby Day. Emily Davison's death was recorded on film and history was made on 20 feet of silver nitrate. She became the most famous suffragette, a heroine for all women who struggled for equality. Her jerky movements on grey, grainy film have played on for a hundred years. At Newmarket, they called Emily that malignant suffragette. King George wrote in his diary. A most disastrous derby. I ran Anma, and just as the horses were coming round Tattenham Corner, a suffragette, Miss Davison, dashed out and tried to catch Anma's bridle. Well, of course she was knocked down and seriously injured. And poor Herbert Jones and Anma, well, they were sent flying. Jones is unconscious, badly cut, has a broken rib and slight concussion. It's a most regrettable and scandalous proceeding. A most disappointing day. The day before Emily Davison's funeral procession through the streets of London, the suffragette depicted Emily on the front page as an angel with large wings, her halo including the words, Love that overcometh. The image was captioned, In honour and loving, reverent memory of Emily Wilding Davison. She died for women. Let's talk about Emily Davison, who uh, died under the King's Horse and Mir at uh, the Derby at the 4th of June 1913. She apparently tried to attach a scarf to the horse. Well, I was very interested in Emily Wilding Davison because she was such a career militant. I mean, you name it, she did it. And she invented a protest. She invented the protest where you put phosphorus bombs into letterboxes to destroy the mail. So that was her unique contribution. And I... Uh, wrote about her um, and I called it When the Jockey Met the Suffragette because I also wrote about the jockey Bertie Jones who was a fantastic man. He was a bit like the Frankie de Tory of his day. You know, he was really successful. He rode the king's horses. You know, he was glamorous and he was he was like a modern day footballer really. You know, he had lots of money and he was a bit of a celebrity. And a terrific man, actually, because I've interviewed his son many, many years oh, after wonderful. this. Because so, he had his children quite late. But so I met his son, and it was thrilling to meet Bertie Jones' son. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was really exciting. And um, I was interested to know her state of mind in the, the year before she actually did that. And it seems to me by looking at her letters and looking at her role within the campaign and looking at her journalism a lot of which wasn't published but, you know, still remains in her papers, it just reads like one long suicide note. And I'm absolutely convinced she meant to do it because there's no way she could have gone into gone to the derby and thought, oh, I'll be able to step out in front of, like, a ton of horse flesh galloping. And that doesn't make sense to me either. No, and everybody knew about horses then because 
if you imagine cars outside, it would have been horses. So everybody knew they could be unpredictable. Everybody knew at speed they were dangerous. So she knew what she was doing. And I think her personal life was a bit sort of sad. I mean, I think she had no money. She couldn't get a job. Nobody wanted to give her a job. And she was going after jobs that were well below her grade, really. And nobody would give her a job. It's partly to do with militant career, but... It was just, she just wasn't an easy team player. She was very much a kind of a, a, a sort of a lone wolf, I think, in, ter- in lots of terms of campaigning. And I think uh, her mother was quite poor. Uh, they kind of struggled financially. And I mean, her prospects weren't great. And I think she meant to do it. And all her journalism is about martyrdom and fire and sacrifice and nobility and awakenings. And it's full of those kind of remarks in, in a really repetitive basis. So I think I think she really meant to do it. And, you know, I revisited that awful footage the other day in research for this. And um, that's what it looks like to me. Absolutely looks like it. But people, people don't like to say that she did because people are very squeamish about suicide. Even now, people find it hard to actually say, well, she probably did do it. Oh. People feel very sensitive about that. Sylvia Pankhurst, who had been released from prison on the 14th of July 1913 after 10 days of hunger and thirst striking, was determined to take the militant voice to Trafalgar Square. On the 27th of July, she addressed a meeting of between 15,000 and 20,000 working women and men. Sylvia wore a wig provided by Nora Smith, padded her chest with newspapers for protection and wore a transparent veil which offered her a disguise and visibility at the same time. When it was her turn to speak, she tore off her wig and told the crowd, We have come here to hold a council of war. The time for argument is past. Our motto is deeds, not words. And we are going to act. You quite rightly focused on a great deal of um, significant women in your book, uh, Mary Lee, Edith Haslan, Laura Ainsworth. Are, are there any particular women, I mean, obviously, they, they, they've all had fantastic moments, but any particular moment that resonated with perhaps a, a lesser-known one? Well, um, people often ask me who my favourite suffragette is, and it's really hard because they're all my favourites in a way. That's why they're in the book. <laughs> but Edith Rigby, who lived in Preston, was rather a marvellous woman because... She was so, so she was such a one-off. She's so unconventional, and she's so absolutely focused and determined in her campaigning style. Her husband was a doctor, and her father and a couple of brothers were doctors, and she was absolutely devoted to the idea of helping working-class women in Preston to improve their lives. And the vote was going to be the the key to unlock the door. And she was just very clear about herself and her ideas. I mean, she was very unconventional in her dress. You just had to look at Edith to realise that she was different to everybody else. <laughs> she, everybody else is kind of, in those days, is kind of going to be corseted mostly and very smart um, and wear particular kinds of jewels. But Edith just made her own clothes. And she's like a hippie. She's like the original hippie. They're baggy dresses. People thought they were weird. She made her own jewel. It was a bit kind of clunky and chunky. She wore sandals. She smoked. <laughs> she chain smoked. And she um, helped her servants with the housework, which was like, no. You know, and the <laughs> other ladies who lived nearby hated this because they thought this was really revolutionary and unsettling. And a group of them got together and went to see her, a little 
sort of delegation of them. And they said, you can't behave like, we don't like your politics, we don't like women's suffrage, and we don't like the way you let your servants not wear servants' clothes. And we don't like the fact that you sometimes are seen washing the step, and we just don't like the way you behave. And we would rather you left the square. It's a bit like Isidendas, isn't it? Leave the square. I'm it's, thinking of Margot in the, in the good life. <laughs> yes. so exactly. So that, that was the dynamic. So she kind of listened, you know, rather impatiently and just sent them on their way. And the next morning they woke up to find that their front doors had been covered in paint. I wonder who did that. So that's what she thought of them. Of course, she didn't move. She didn't leave. She came to London on a regular basis, brought other Preston women, um, went to prison on hunger strike. She did the whole lot. And in the last few months of the campaign, she was hiding in Ireland. She was hiding in Galway. Nobody knew where she was because she was um, escaping on the run from the police. Um, and her husband had no idea where she was. And uh, a, a friend, a family friend said, oh, wasn't it awful about Edith? Wrote a letter saying, oh, I'm so sorry about all the trouble Edith's causing you. And he said, I don't want, I don't want your sorrow. I don't want your condolences. I'm absolutely happy. I'm so proud of her. I'm behind her every step of the way. I back her. He said, because I haven't got the moral courage that Edith has to protest like this. And I just think that was such a beautiful thing. When I, when I read that, I just thought, I've got to put this in the book because that just tells us about how difficult it was for some husbands because, you know, they bat their wives, but their friends hated them. Sometimes their reputations were suffering and sometimes their careers suffered because they were part of this madness that was going on. And, you know, a lot of their, their male friends regarded them as sort of unsexed and, un, you know, uh, womanly men, all that kind of stuff. So Charlie was prepared to stand up and support his wife, whatever the cost himself. So I love that. Some of us are great, Diane. You know, we really are. <laughs> but lots of them weren't. I know. Yeah, I know. We were rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> The First World War really sort of uh, put the mockers on it for a while because obviously priorities had to change. Now, how long did it take until after the war was over for, for everything to filter through and, and then for this vote to, to happen? Well, the, the moderate campaign has kept sort of um, digging away at the vote through the war. You, they said, well, let's just keep campaigning. But that was lost in the kind of the white noise of war, if you like. Um, and so... It's hard for it to get any traction. They still kept going. So that's the moderate campaigners. They were doing their thing for the vote. And the suffragettes decide, the Pankhurst decide, the national emergency is so great. And I sort of agree with them in this sense because it's very hard for us to imagine what it was like to live through the First World War. Well, at the time, most people thought the Germans were going to win because that's what it looked like. Mm. It's only in 1918 when we have the help from the Americans and the German fortunes go the other way that it becomes a, a possibility. So the focus is on keeping the keeping fighting on the home front and the various theatres of war. So I can see why the Pankhurst got into that mindset. And they said, we're going to come, we're going to get all our women out of prison. We want everybody to put their backs into the war effort in a way a bit like they'd campaigned and just win this war. And um, in a way, 
it was important that women did stand up and and prove that yeah. they could. Because, Absolutely. Because a lot of the comment about why women shouldn't have the vote was because they were sort of incompetent mm. and weak and foolish and silly and all that. <laughs> and now, of course, they're driving cranes. They're driving trains and buses. They're doing everything that men do. A million of them are making munitions, which keeps the war going. But during the war, they it was found, to everybody's shock and dismay, that a lot of men who were fighting the war had accidentally lost their right to vote because they hadn't been home to re-register it. You know, we have to re-register our vote every year. It's just a <laughs> silly bit of card you have to send back mm. to the local council. Well, it, that was the legal, that was a technical thing that had sort of fallen through the gap. So a lot of guys were out there laying down their lives for the country who weren't voters, and that was felt to be psychologically and politically disastrous. So they have to work out how they're going to re-enfranchise those guys. Oh, yes, and let's give all men the vote because there were still men who didn't have Absolutely. it. Absolutely, There's still quite a lot of working men who didn't have it. So let's give them the vote because that's a nice reward. <laughs> and, OK, so what are we going to do about the women who were, invo- who were involved in keeping this country going? And that's really the moment when it's felt it has to happen. The political landscape is different in 1916 and 17 when all this is being sort of debated. Um, the old dinosaurs have gone, you know, and the uh, and Thank it, yeah, and and the coalition government is more reasonable. I'm not saying they were jumping up and down and saying, "Oh, hooray, we're going to give women the vote," but they, I think, they thought thought they couldn't not give it yeah. to them, you know, at least some of them, because imagine if they had not given women the vote. Imagine what the Pankhursts and the suffragettes are going to say and do after the war, they're going to say, well, what more do we have to do? We've saved this country. What more do we have to do for, to, for women to get the vote? So they would have started that up again, definitely. And they would have had the moral high ground. And that would have been a very beautiful thing to have. You've half answered this question earlier, Diane, but it has been argued in some quarters, but it was very much a struggle of, of the white and the privileged were uh, any women uh, from ethnic minorities involved in the suffragettes? Well, I mean, I've I was I was looking for these stories um, during that four year period of, sort of hunting and gathering, um, and I I know that there were women Indian women present who were studying in London at a very big spectacular procession in 1911. So we, there's a beautiful right. photograph of them in my book. But the woman who had the career as a suffragette was a very interesting one called Princess Sophia Dulip Singh. She's the one who smoked all the Turkish cigarettes. She liked a cigarette and she liked a bicycle and she <laughs> loved a fur coat. You know, she loved all of these things. Um, and she was one of Queen Victoria's goddaughters. She lives at Hampton Court Palace in, in a grace and favour apartment attached to Hampton Court Palace. And um, she gets involved. She refuses to pay her taxes and she has her goods seized and they're auctioned, all that kind of stuff. And she goes, she's one of the people with Mrs. Pankhurst who go on Black Friday to get into the House of Commons. So she witnesses Black Friday all around her. And of course, the establishment get very upset and worried about her, especially when they see her photographed outside Hampton Court Palace, wearing her little satchel, selling suffragette newspapers, standing next to a placard saying revolution. And um, the, the equities were saying to the king, we need to do something about this. We And the, the view was, well, let's get her out of the Grace and Favour apartment because this is just embarrassing, it's deeply embarrassing. And of course, they, they backed away from that because, she, of course, Queen Victoria had been her godmother. But, I mean, she certainly ruffled feathers and she certainly upset a lot of people. And she was a very active suffragette. So she, she's our best example. But th- th- there is a gap in the story, without doubt. 
So, 100 years on, how far do you feel we've come? I mean, it seems to me that there is so much more work to be done globally. Mm. In, in some ways, it's doing really well. We now have a female Doctor Who, which is very exciting. That's fabulous. <laughs> it's totally fabulous. <laughs> but um, what's, your, what's your sort of conclusion, really, to, to where we're at now? Well, I, I think there's loads to do. And I think Mrs. Pankhurst would um, be happy about the progress that women have made. You know, she'd be proud of that and, and feel that she'd been part of it, certainly. But she would be horrified at this whole equal pay debacle. Absolutely. And she would find it iniquitous because one of the platforms for the vote was that we would sort out equal pay. And, if you th- and, and we still don't have it. And if you think about it, in 1970, the Equal Pay Act was passed. It was meant to be fully operational across the board everywhere by 1975. And here we are, we still don't have it. That has to be addressed. And I think that's going to be addressed. I think that is doable. I mean, people will be car- uh, will be dragged into it, kicking and screaming, but they will have to do it. But it will need legislation. It will need political will to make this happen and um, you know, laws that have to be adhered to. The other thing I think that we need to to kind of just sort out is this whole sexual harassment nonsense. And I think women's lives being damaged and and, uh, affected by um, this whole business of the vulnerability of women in the workplace, even at kind of senior levels. Mrs. Pankhurst would say, but a lot of our women came to us and joined a campaign for this problem and you still haven't dealt with it. You know, you need to get on with this. And I think she would say we need, she would say, she would tell us to roll our sleeves up and get on with it. And I think this year offers real hope that we're not going to just celebrate these great women. It's got to be more than that. We've got to look to them for inspiration and just make it happen. Diane, thank you so much for the interview. Any remains for me to give you, as we give all our guests, a celebrity goodie bag, oh. a, a, a pink one for oh, a girl. Rob, it was the girl. <laughs> thank you. There you That's go. Diane Atkinson, thank you so much. Well, thank you for asking me. who form the Women's Social and Political Union are engaged in the attempt to win the parliamentary vote for the women of this country. Their claim is that those women who pay rates and taxes and fulfill the same qualifications as men voters shall be placed upon the parliamentary register. The reasons why women should have the vote are obvious to every fair-minded person. The British Constitution provides the taxation and representation shall go together. Therefore, women taxpayers are entitled to vote. And our thanks again go to Diane Atkinson. Marion Marshall was both book narrator and the voice of the suffragettes. Georgia Fifth was played by Nick Cavill, and music was by Arne Anderson. Our next show in the series features Blue Peter legend Biddy Baxter. But until then, from me, Nick Randall, goodbye.